Section 26 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Carlo in San Clemente, California. Chapter 8, Venice by Horatio Brown, Part 1. The beginning of the 15th century offers a convenient point whence to survey the growth of the Venetian Republic. Venice had by that time become the Venice of modern European history, a great trading city, a mart for the exchange of goods between East and West, committed to a policy destined to make her one of the five Italian powers, and eventually to raise up against her a coalition of all Italy and Europe. Her constitution was fixed, her colonial system developed, her position towards the church defined, her aggrandizement on the Italian mainland initiated, her wealth, her splendor, her art were beginning to attract the attention of the civilized world. The various threads of Venetian history are drawn together at this epoch. The Republic was about to move forward upon a larger, more ambitious career than it had hitherto followed, a career for which its various lines of development the creation of a maritime empire, expansion on the mainland, efforts for ecclesiastical independence, growth and solidification of the Constitution, had been slowly preparing it. An examination of each of these lines in turn will enable us to understand the nature of the Venetian Republic as it emerged from the Middle Ages and became, for a time, one of the greatest factors in European history. The growth of the Venetian maritime empire in the Levant and supremacy in the Mediterranean falls into four well-defined periods. The Venetians began by moving slowly down the Dalmatian coast and establishing their power in the Adriatic. They then pushed out eastward and acquired rights in Syrian seaports such as Sidon, Tyre, Acre. They seized many of the islands in the archipelago as their share of the plunder after the Fourth Crusade, Finally, they met, fought, and defeated their only serious maritime rivals, the Genoese. The Adriatic is the natural water avenue to Venice. If her commerce was to flourish, it was essential that she should be mistress in this sea. But the eastern coast of the Adriatic, with its deep gulfs and numerous islands, had for long sheltered a race of pirates who never ceased to molest Venetian traffic. It was necessary to destroy this corsair's nest, and Venice embarked on the first great war she undertook as an independent state in her own individual interests. This war was entirely successful. The Dalmatian coast towns recognized the Doge as Duke of Dalmatia and submitted to a nominal tribute in recognition of the supremacy of the Republic. Venice, it is true, did not remain in undisturbed and continuous possession of Dalmatia, but she acquired a title which she subsequently rendered effective. She thus took the first step towards that indispensable condition of her commercial existence, supremacy in the Adriatic. The Dalmatian cities were now open to her merchants. The Dalmatian seaboard furnished a food supply which the lagoons could not, Dalmatian forests yielded timber for building ships and houses. With the period of the Crusades, Venice achieved a still wider expansion in the Levant. 
The eyes of Europe had been attracted to the little city in the lagoons, which had attacked and subdued the Narentine pirates, challenged and fought the Normans, and rendered striking services to the eastern emperor himself. When the crusaders began to look about for a port of embarkation and for transport service to the Holy Land, the three cities of Genoa, Pisa, and Venice offered themselves. Venice was not only the most powerful, she was also the most easterly of the three. Her geographical position naturally led to the choice of Venice as the port of departure. The issue of the Crusades proved that the Republic entered upon those enterprises in a purely commercial spirit. When Sidon fell, the Venetians received from Baldwin, king of Jerusalem, in return for their assistance, a marketplace, a district, a church, and the right to use their own weights and measures in that city. This was, in fact, the nucleus of a colony of merchants living under special treaty capitulations, and the privileges of the Sidon Treaty we find repeated and extended when Acre, Tyre, and Ascalon were successively occupied. The siege and capture of Tyre mark the close of the second period in the history of Venetian maritime expansion. With the erection of factories in Constantinople and in the chief cities of the Syrian seaboard, the Republic may be said to have embarked upon the construction of the Greater Venice, which was to be completed after the Fourth Crusade. But the course of Venetian expansion was not uninterruptedly smooth. The rapid growth of her power in the Levant procured for the Republic an enemy in the person of the Eastern Emperor. The emperors had always viewed with suspicion the whole movement of the Crusades, and more especially the professedly commercial attitude assumed by Venice, who was obviously bent upon acquiring territory and rights inside the empire. They were aware that they could chastise her by favoring her rivals Pisa and Genoa. The growing wealth and importance of Venetian colonists in Constantinople, where they are said to have numbered 200,000, increased the imperial jealousy. The Venetians were accused of being troublesome, brawling neighbors who kept the town in an uproar. In March 1171, all Venetians in the empire were placed under arrest and their property confiscated. Popular indignation at Venice swept the Republic into war with the emperor. One hundred galleys and twenty ships were manned in the course of a hundred days. The issue of the campaign was disastrous for the Venetians. The emperor's ambassadors induced the doge to temporize. The plague decimated and nearly annihilated the fleet. The shattered remnants returned to Venice, where the doge was slain by the mob. With the reign of Enrico Dandolo and the Fourth Crusade, we approach a memorable period in the history of Venetian maritime empire. When Dandolo came to the throne, the affairs of the Republic, as regards their maritime power, stood thus. In the imperial city, their position was precarious, liable to violent changes, exposed to the machinations of their commercial and naval rivals, Pisa and Genoa. The communications with their Syrian factories were not secure. Zara and the Dalmatian coast were still in revolt. In the year 1201, the Republic discovered that the usurping emperor, Alexius III, was in treaty with the Genoese and meditated conferring on them ampler trading rights. The immediate objects of the Republic were the recovery of Zara and the suppression of their commercial rivals in Constantinople. The story of the Fourth Crusade 
is the story of the way in which the Republic accomplished its aims. Tsar was recovered, and on the fall of Constantinople in 1204, the Republic reaped material advantages of a preponderating kind. Her portion of the booty gave her solid riches, with which she bought the rights of Boniface over Crete and Salonica, and obtained leave for Venetian citizens to occupy as fiefs of the empire any Aegean islands not already owned by the Republic. In this way, she became possessed of the Cyclades and Sporides, and held the seaports of Thessaly and the island of Crete. Zara and other Dalmatian towns now became hers both by conquest and by title, and thus the Republic acquired an unbroken line of communication from Venice down the Adriatic to Constantinople and round to the seaports of the Syrian coast. But the possession of this large maritime empire had to be made good. Venice was unable to undertake at one and the same time the actual conquest and settlement of so many scattered territories. She adopted a method borrowed from the feudal system of her Frankish allies and granted investiture of the various islands as fiefs to those of her richer families who would undertake to render effective the Venetian title and to hold the territories for the Republic at a nominal tribute. We have no evidence as to how these fenditories established their title and governed their fiefs, but when we come to deal with the growth of the Venetian constitution, we shall find that a great increase in private wealth resulted from this partition of the Levant Islands. We do know, however, the system adopted for the colonization of the large island of Crete, which the Republic kept directly in its own hands. Venetian citizens were tempted to settle in the island by the gift of certain villages with their districts. These they were expected to hold for the Republic in the case of a revolution. The governor of the island, who bore the title of Duke of Candia, was a Venetian noble elected in the Great Council at Venice. He was assisted by two councillors. Matters of importance were decided by the Great Council of Crete, which was composed of all noble Venetians resident in the island and all noble Cretans. The remaining magistracies were formed upon the Venetian model, and the higher posts, such as those of captain-general, commander of the cavalry, governors, and military commanders in the larger towns, were filled by Venetians. The minor offices were open to Cretans. Absolute equality was granted to both Roman and Orthodox rites. In fact, the Republic displayed at once the governing ideas of her colonial policy, namely to interfere as little as possible with local institutions, to develop the resources of the country, to encourage trade with the metropolis, to retain only the very highest military and civil appointments in her own hands as a symbol and guarantee of her supremacy. For the defense of these widely scattered possessions, and for the preservation of communications between Venice and her dependencies, the Republic was obliged to organize a service of patrol squadrons. The captain of the Gulf, that is, the Adriatic, had his headquarters at the Ionian Islands, and was responsible for the safety of merchantmen from Venice to those islands and in the waters of the Morea as far as Madone and Coron. From the Morea to the Dardanelles, the safety of the sea route was entrusted to the Venetian feudatories in the Greek islands, 
while the Dardanelles, the Sea of Marmara, the Bosphorus, and the Black Sea were patrolled by the Black Sea Squadron. It is obvious that the outcome of the Fourth Crusade was of vast importance for the expansion of Venetian maritime empire, and we are now in the presence of a Venice quite different from anything we have encountered hitherto. The Republic assumed the aspect of a naval power with a large mercantile marine and organized squadrons of warships for her protection. The crews of Venetian warships were at this period free citizens, serving under the command of a Venetian noble. Condemned prisoners or galley slaves were not employed till much later, first because the state was hardly large enough to furnish sufficient criminals to serve the oar, and secondly because, as long as boarding formed an important operation in naval tactics, condemned criminals could not be employed with safety, as it was dangerous to entrust them with arms. When ramming took the place of boarding, the galley slave, chained to his bench, could be used precisely as we use machinery. The expansion of Venetian maritime empire as the outcome of the Fourth Crusade roused the jealousy of her great rival Genoa. It was inevitable that the Genoese and the Venetians, both occupying neighboring quarters in the Levantine cities, each competing for a monopoly of eastern commerce, should come to blows. The Republic was now committed to a struggle with her western rival for supremacy in the Levant, a deplorable conflict fraught with disaster for both parties. A long period of naval campaigning ensued, the fortune of war leaning now to one side, now to the other. The breathing space between each campaign and the next was devoted by the Republic to the development of her commerce. Treaties were stipulated with Milan, Bologna, Brescia, Como. Trade with England and Flanders by means of the Flanders galleys was developed. Venetian merchants brought sugar from the Levant and exchanged it for wool in London. The wool was sold in Flanders and cloth bought, which was placed on the markets of Italy and Dalmatia, as the ships sailed east again to procure fresh cargoes for the London market. Industries also began to take root in the city. Refugees from Lucca introduced the silk trade and established themselves in a quarter near the Rialto. The glass manufacturer of Murano received an impetus. The population of the city numbered 200,000. The males fit for arms, that is, between the ages of twenty and sixty, were reckoned at forty thousand. There is proof that, in spite of defeats by Genoa at Ayas and Corzola, Venice had achieved a high position in the eyes of European princes. Edward III asked for Venetian aid in his wars with Philip of France. He offered extensive privileges and invited the Doge to send his sons to the English court. Alfonso of Sicily apologized for insults offered to Venetian merchants. The Pope proposed that Venice should undertake the protection of Christians against the Ottoman Turks, who were now beginning to threaten Europe, in return for which the Republic was to enjoy the ecclesiastical tithes for three years. But Genoa was not yet driven from the field. It was impossible that commercial rivalries should not lead to fresh explosions. The fur trade in the Crimea gave rise to differences. The Venetians sent an embassy to Genoa to protest against alleged violations of a compact by which both republics had pledged themselves to abstain from trading with the Tartars. The Genoese gave Venice to understand that her presence in the Black Sea was only permitted on sufferance. War broke out. 
the republics were now embarked upon a struggle to the death from which one or the other of the combatants must emerge finally victorious. In the course of that struggle, the recuperative power of Venice was amply demonstrated. She lost Negroponte. She was defeated in the Bosphorus. Her whole fleet was annihilated at Sapienza. But the result of her one great victory at Cagliari was sufficient to counterbalance her losses, for by it she forced Genoa to surrender her liberties to Visconti. And so, while Venice, after each disaster, after Curzola and Sapienza, was able to devote her whole energies to replacing her fleet and re-establishing her commerce, the case was very different with her rival. The Genoese Republic had accepted the lordship of Visconti at a moment of great peril and was compelled to devote any interval of peace with Venice not to the increase of her wealth and the augmentation of her fleet, but to efforts for the recovery of that freedom she had surrendered. Genoa could only stand by and watch with jealous eyes the reconstitution of her antagonist. The steady advance of Venice brought about the final rupture. On the threat that they would join the Sultan Murad I and expel the Emperor John Palaeologus from his throne, the Venetians wrung from the Emperor the concession of the island of Denedos. The position of that island, commanding the mouth of the Dardanelles, made it intolerable to the Genoese that it should pass into the hands of their enemies. War was declared again in 1378. In the following year, Vettor Pisani, the Venetian commander, was utterly defeated at Pola, though the Genoese lost their admiral in the battle. This delayed their attack on the lagoons, and while they awaited the arrival of a new commander, the panic in Venice subsided, and the Republic set to work to protect the home waters from an assault which seemed imminent day by day. In July, Pietro Doria, the Genoese admiral, reconnoitred Chioggia, and it was clear that he intended to make that lagoon city his headquarters, and thence to blockade and starve Venice to surrender. Chioggia lay close to the mainland, and Doria counted on abundant supplies from Francesco Carrara, lord of Padua, who was at that time at open war with the Republic and blockading her on the land side. But Chioggia had yet to be captured. On August 11, 1379, the assault began and was renewed till the 18th, when the town fell into the hands of the Genoese. Carrara urged Doria to push on at once to Venice, only about twenty miles away, and had he done so, there can be little doubt but that the flag of St. George of Genoa would have floated in the piazza, and Carrara would have carried out his threat of biting and bridling the horses on St. Mark's. But the Genoese admiral decided to abide by his plan of a blockade, and his decision proved the salvation of Venice. At Venice, in the face of this imminent peril, the whole population displayed coolness, courage, and tenacity. The magistrates forewent their pay. New imposts were borne without complaint. The people, invited to express their wishes on the question of continuing the war, replied, Let us man every vessel in Venice and go to fight the foe. The public voice designated Vittor Pisani as leader, in spite of the disastrous defeat he had suffered at Borla, and the government withdrew their own candidate, Taddeo Giustinian. Thirty-four galleys were put together, 
and Pisani took the command. Meanwhile, Doria had resolved to withdraw his whole fleet into Chioggia for winter quarters. Pisani grasped the situation and seized the opportunity. He resolved to blockade the blockaders. All the channels which gave egress from Chioggia to the sea were rendered useless by sinking across them galleys filled with stones. Pisani then drew up his fleet in the open sea opposite the Chioggian entrance to the lagoons in order to intercept any reinforcements which might be sent from Genoa. The Genoese in Chioggia were all the while straining every nerve to break through Pisani's lines. His crews were kept on guard by turns, day and night. It was winter time, and a storm from the east or southeast might easily spring up such as would probably drive Pisani onto the lee shore. The strain on the Venetians was very great. But just when they were on the point of abandoning the blockade, Carlo Zeno's fleet, which had been cruising down the Adriatic, hove in sight. The reinforcements enabled Pisani to land troops and to occupy the point of Brondolo, whence his two great guns, the Trevisana and the Vittoria, opened on the town. A shot from one of them brought down the Campanile and killed the Genoese admiral Doria. His successor, Napoleon Grimaldi, withdrew all his troops into Chioggia and abandoned the design of cutting a new canal from the lagoons to the sea. Carlo Zena, with a company of mercenaries, disembarked on the mainland and eventually succeeded in cutting off the supplies which Carrara was sending into Chioggia. The Genoese began building light boats in which they hoped to be able to sail over the obstacles in the channels that led to the Adriatic. Twice they attempted a sortie and failed. Famine came to close the long list of their disasters, and on June 24, 1380, the Genoese fleet surrendered to Venice. The successful issue of the War of Chioggia left the Republic of Venice the supreme naval power in the Mediterranean. Genoa never recovered from the blow. She fell a prey to internal feuds, and in 1396 she renounced her independence, receiving from Charles VI of France a governor who ruled the state in French interests. Venetian predominance in the Mediterranean was confirmed by the recovery of Corfu in 1386 and by the purchase of Argos and Oblia in the Peloponnese. But at the very moment when her power seemed indisputably established, a new and formidable rival began to loom on the horizon. Sultan Bayezid's victory at Nicopolis in 1392 planted a Muslim mosque and a Qadi in Constantinople, and presaged for Venice that long series of wars which were destined eventually to drain her resources and to rob her of her maritime supremacy. The expansion of Venice on the mainland of Italy began somewhat later than the creation of her maritime dominion, and was in a certain way the result of that dominion. The Republic was originally a sea power whose merchants brought to her port the various products of eastern countries, all de transmarinis partibus orientalium divitias. The geographical position of Venice as the seaport nearest to the center of Europe indicated her as a great emporium and mart for the distribution and exchange of goods, and further, her situation in the shallow waters of the lagoons gave her a monopoly of salt. Cassiodorus, Theodoric's secretary, 
when describing the growing state, points to salt as the real riches of the young republic. For men may live without gold, he says, but no one ever heard of their being able to do without salt. Venice, however, required an outlet for her commodities, and this led at first to the establishment of factories in the districts of Belluno and Treviso, along the banks of the Piave and on one of the high roads into the heart of Europe, 991, and subsequently at Ferrara, 1100, and again at Fano, 1130. But these factories did not, strictly speaking, constitute territorial possessions. They were merely colonies of Venetian merchants living in foreign cities under special treaty rights, which conferred extraterritoriality on the Venetian quarter. Indeed, the early policy of the Republic was to keep as far aloof as possible from all the complications of the Italian mainland. Her real interests lay in the East, in the Levant and Constantinople, in Syria. Her character was Oriental rather than Latin. When Pippin, the son of Charles the Great, attempted to compel the Republic to recognize the Frankish suzerainty, he received for answer, Imis duli thelomen, inetu vasileoston romeonke uhisu. And to the spirit of that answer, the Venetians remained faithful throughout their early career. It is not until the year 1300 that the Republic took a decisive and acquisitive step on the Italian mainland. In Ferrara, as we have seen, Venice had established a commercial colony protected by treaty rights. These were swept away when Salinguerra held the city for the Emperor Frederick II, who was hostile to Venice on account of the part she was playing in the Lombard League, for which she acted as banker. Pope Gregory IX, while endeavoring to recover the city which he claimed as part of Countess Matilda's legacy to the church, applied to Venice for help. The Republic was largely instrumental in expelling the imperial troops and recovered all her privileges and interests in the mainland city. These privileges and interests were destined to entangle her in the complications of mainland politics. The Deste family was established at Ferrara and held it as a fief of the Holy See. But the Republic had been growing steadily in wealth and strength thanks to her expansion in the Levant and to the consolidation of her constitution as an oligarchy by the closing of the Great Council in 1297. She had before her the example of other lordships rising to power on the mainland, Scala, Visconti, Carrara, all in her neighborhood. It seems certain from the attitude of the doge, Pietro Cardenigo, that the government entertained the idea of taking the place of the deste should a fitting occasion present itself. That moment appeared to have arrived when Azzo d'Este lay in his deathbed. The Republic sent three nobles to Ferrara with instructions to see that the succession was directed in a way consonant with its aims. Azzo had no legitimate offspring. The d'Este succession seemed likely to pass through his brothers, Francesco and Aldebrandino. But Azzo had a bastard named Fresco, who had a son, Folco, and Azzo named Folco his heir. On his death, the uncles of Volco tried to unseat him and his father, Fresco, who in his straits applied for help to Venice, which was given. But now the Pope, as overlord, claimed the right to direct the succession, and sent his troops into Ferrara to support Francesco and to take over the city in the name of the church. 
Thereupon, Fresco, in the name of his son Folco, ceded to Venice Folco's claims in Ferrara. The papal troops entered the city, but the Venetians held the fortress and commanded the town. The Pope ordered the Venetians to evacuate the castle. The Doge's speech on this occasion clearly indicates the political conceptions of the party in power and points most emphatically to an expansion of Venice on the mainland of Italy. Cardenigo urged that it was the duty of a loyal citizen to lose no opportunity for the aggrandizement of his native state. In spite of opposition, the Doge's policy carried the day, and it was resolved to retain Ferrara. On March 27, 1309, the Pope launched the excommunication and interdict. The clergy were ordered to leave Venetian territory. But more than this, the jealousy of Venice, which had been roused by her expansion and preponderance in the Levant, broke loose now. Under the papal sanction, in England, in Asia Minor, in Italy, Venetian merchants were threatened in their lives and despoiled of their goods. The government held firm and ordered its officers in Ferrara to withdraw into the castle, promising relief from Venice. But plague broke out in the city. The papal arms pressed the castle closer and closer, till it fell and all the Venetians were put to the sword. These disasters precipitated the great conspiracy of Bayamonte Tiepolo, with which we shall deal when discussing the Venetian constitution. And in 1311, the Republic made its peace with the Pope, paid an indemnity, and received permission to resume its trading rights in Ferrara. This first attempt of Venice to establish herself in possession of mainland territory proved a failure. But the rise of the great lords of Verona, Padua, Milan, the Scala, Carresi, and Visconti, and the struggles which took place between them, could not fail to disturb the quiet of the lagoons and to draw Venice once more into the mesh of Italian politics. It was impossible for Venice to be indifferent to events which were affecting cities so close to herself and so necessary for her commerce as Padua and Treviso. Padua, thanks chiefly to the ability of Jacopo de Carrara, had made herself mistress of Vicenza, and had thus been brought into close proximity with the possessions of the powerful family of della Scala, lords of Verona. The Paduans, in return for Jacopo's services, elected him as her lord. When Jacopo da Carrara died, Can Grande della Scala attacked Marsilio da Carrara, who had succeeded his uncle, and wrung from him Padua and the Padovano. Thence the Scala spread to Feltre, Belluno, and the territory at the foot of the Alps, and finally Treviso came to their possession in 1329. The Republic of Venice could not be indifferent to the growth of a power which threatened to enclose the lagoons and to block all exits for Venetian merchandise. Moreover, her natural position rendered her incapable of supporting herself if food supplies from the mainland were cut off. A contingency of this kind, if it should happen to coincide with such a defeat at sea as Venice had sustained at Curzola or Sapienza, would, in a very short time, have placed the Republic at the discretion of her enemies. It was obvious, therefore, that Venice was face to face with a rival whom she must either crush or be ruined. War was inevitable. 
The crisis was of vital importance to the Republic. It is true that in the War of Ferrara she had made an attempt to establish herself on the mainland, but in attacking the Lord of Verona, Vicenza, Brescia, Treviso, Feltre, Belluno, and Padua, she was embarking on a far more serious enterprise. Failure meant peril to her very existence. Success would compel her to occupy the nearer mainland and therefore to sacrifice one of her great advantages, the absence of a mainland frontier to protect. The party of the Doge, the party opposed to the war, was met and overcome by the argument that war was the only alternative to starvation. The want of corn for feeding the city could not be supplied in any other way. Moreover, it was urged that if Venice once attacked the Scala, she would be joined by all who were jealous of the growing power of Verona and its lords. Such proved to be the case. The declaration of war by Venice at once created so strong a combination, Florence, Parma, and Venice, that Mastino della Scala was forced to negotiate for peace. With singular want of judgment, he chose as his ambassador to Venice Massilio da Carrara, the very man whom the Scala had already deprived of the lordship of Padua. That lordship the Doge promised to restore to the Carresi if Marsilio would admit the troops of the League into Padua, which he held in the name of Mastino della Scala. Marsilio kept his word, and in August 1337, Pietro de Rossi, general of the Confederate forces, entered the city. For her own part, the Republic, by the Peace of 1338, thus gained possession of the marches of Treviso, with the districts of Bassano, Castelfranco, Conigliano, and Oderzo, her first mainland possession, and the family of Carrara held Padua, which had been captured in the name of the Republic as a quasi-fief of Venice. She was now in command of a corn-growing district and was sure of an abundant meat supply. But, on the other hand, the mainland frontier, which she now acquired, exposed her to attack from the Patriarch of Aquileia or the Counts of Goetz, while she was bound to protect her dependent Carrara, beyond whom lay the growing power and ambition of the Visconti of Milan. An attack on Carrara was necessarily a threat to Venice, and in fact, if not in appearance, the Republic had by the fall of the Scala become conterminous with Visconti. End of section 26 Recording by Aaron Carlo in San Clemente, California.